Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, today, as mentioned, is uh, technically the last day of Jonathan's internship, and it's been a particular joy for me to be the supervising pastor uh, for his internship, with him being, of course, my son. I've had the joy of uh, having a part in training many, many hundreds of men, and I've had 13 interns uh, through the years. Uh, uh, Eleven of them are serving the Lord faithfully around the world. Well, let's, uh, let's thank Jonathan for his internship. Come on and open the word to us. It, it is a joy for me uh, to, to do my internship here. Um, my, my next week at this time, I was thinking about this uh, last night. Uh, what, what will I be doing a week from tomorrow when I'm preaching? Probably... I will be not in church. I'll be getting ready to go to church because it's an hour behind, and it fits my schedule a little bit better, being an hour behind. My mom doesn't like that joke. Um, but uh, but it, it, that's kind of crazy to think about. The summer's already gone, and we've got a lot in, and, and I'm kind of glad to, to, to get a break here for a little bit, though, which is school. But... Um, uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I preached a message on um, with the gospel and it, it, uh, and it and its truth, and then how you relate it to the culture. I barked a lot. That was one of the responses. People were like, "Well," and that was maybe not the best response I wanted. You know that? I'm like, "Well, what do you think?" Like, you barked a lot. It sounded like you had rabies or something. I don't know. And uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask someone. Who, uh, the, the ringing is starting to die down now in their ears from when I barked. Um, <laughs> if a lot of people are looking at me like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, but uh, it was for the people who switched from caffeinated to decaf that week to stay awake. It was a shot of adrenaline. And uh, we're not going to do We're going to muzzle the beast this week. Um, <laughs> so we won't do that. Um, but um, then I was looking at my, my schedule of what I needed to do to fulfill my requirements. And I begin to realize I have to do a narrative message, <clears throat> and those are some of the hardest to do. Um, my dad would agree with that. Narrative messages are very difficult, so maybe I'm stating that before so you, I can get some grace if it doesn't just crash and burns. Um, but narrative is just it is telling a story. That's what it is. Um, I did an epistle last time, the letter of Paul, did a couple verses, hammered it out and said, this is what he means in the Greek, this is what it means today. Um, and now I had to do a narrative, and so we're going to end up with the prodigal son, which it's popularly known as. I don't agree with that title. So I was trying to come up with some, but before I was coming up with uh, the research for this, this, this story, I was trying to think of some very cool titles to bring people in, or if there's a CD sitting on a coffee table, they'd be like, oh, that sounds like a very cool title. Uh, maybe I'll pop that CD in, but then no one really listens to CDs anymore. Um, it's all iPods, but uh, I thought of a couple, and I, I was like, man, you know what would be cool is if uh, uh, maybe the title could be Lost is Not Just a TV Show, or the type of Lost that MapQuest can't help you with, 
Um, <laughs> and then I began to do the research and began to think I'm way off um, because the story is not about the prodigal son as much as it's a comparison and, and contrast between two sons. And, uh, and when, you, when you just pin it down to the prodigal son or the lost son, the delinquent son, you miss the real purpose of the story. And so we're going to call it My Two Sons. I know that the TV show was My Three Sons. We're going to call it My Two Sons. Um, you call it My Three Sons, and you could be the third son, and how you're going to respond, I don't know. But uh, it'd be My Two Sons. But uh, give you guys a little background. Um, John MacArthur said that uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Charles Dickens said that this is the greatest story ever written. Um, aside from the Bible, this, this single short narrative, it, it's so succinct in its theology. It, it's, I mean, it's unbelievable, the story of the delinquent son, um, the, the, the shameless son, the shameless father, uh, and then how they come back together and there's reconciliation. And it's unbelievable um, the way it's told. And a couple things I want to do here today is that in, um, this story is, is so radical. And that's the thing is that we've, we've kind of um, made the Bible fit into our culture so much that it loses. Um, we don't look into it from a first century Near Eastern perspective. We think if there's a famine, we're like, oh, it's pretty much like the Dust Bowl in 1930. Uh, it's probably what happened, and it's completely different. When we think of the father in this story, we look at it as a father from today. We don't have a high honor society like they do. Okay, we have a very low honor society. We have a high material society. Um, and so the only thing people really value is not their name, their vows, nothing, but just using people to get things. Complete opposite. People did care about material, but they also cared about their name and their reputation. Big difference. Okay, so you have to read that in. We're going to talk about that here a little bit. Um, we're going to cover this story and maybe about, if you were here on Wednesday nights, I'm not very good at giving time frames, which is going to come back to bite me when I have to do a preaching class this Wednesday and they say I have to be within 30 minutes. Um, but uh, we're going to cover this story pretty quickly, talk about what it means, and then we're talking about what it means to us. Okay, um, in, in the early church, um, and this might surprise you, for the first 200 years, the Romans considered the Christians atheists. Atheists. Um, and, and many of the popular religions considered Christians anti-religion because it's so different. Christianity breaks all the rules of religion that uh, it, it's just, it's completely different. And now some people have religified Christianity, and so it looks like other religions, and it looks like works, but it's completely different. And, then, and it's the radicalness of the story that we're going to come in and look at, that what Jesus says to two groups of people. Um, if you guys want to open your Bibles to Luke 15. And uh, we're going to discover why uh, the story is so radical, why they were considered atheists, why they were considered anti-religion or anti-religious. Um, all right, we're going to start with uh, Luke 15, 1 and 2, then we're going to get into 15, 11 to 32. So we've got to set the stage, um, got to get the ingredients and then bake the cake. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but anyways, what's happened here is that the religious people hate Jesus. All right, everyone knows that. You know, that everyone's like, oh, don't be a Pharisee, because we always use that as kind of a swear word today to, to condemn people. You're a Pharisee, you're judging me, you're all this, and that's true. 
But you have to know, in that day, the Pharisees were seen as good people, legitimately. They were seen as great people. And uh, they were, they were um, people who gave a lot to the, to the synagogue. They were people who, who prayed publicly, these um, like immaculate prayers. Um, and uh, they would do open confession, Lord. I've, and of course, they wouldn't do the same type of confession that the lost son does because they didn't fall into as much sin. Um, <laughs> but uh, they were seen as, I mean, they, they knew uh, all about this, the scriptures and they knew all the Old Testament but Jesus didn't fit into their story of what they thought a savior would look like. You know, a savior wasn't supposed to come and hang out with prostitutes and ca- tax collectors. He was supposed to come and, and, um, and hang out with the low uh, people that lived in the gutter, but he was supposed to come hang out with the religious people, right? That's, that was the litmus test, is if Jesus was really the savior, he'd want to hang out with us, but he doesn't. He, he condemns us. And so what they said was, he, he's, we, we can't take down his miracles because they're verifiable. A guy you couldn't see and now he can see. Those are, we can't take that down. But what we can say is where's the source of the power coming from? It comes from Satan. And that's where we get that line that Abraham Lincoln took, a house divided cannot stand. Jesus took that as a defense and said, I'm speaking against sin and I'm speaking against Satan. Why would Satan empower me and employ me to speak against him? And, uh, and so he's going off to... to um, uh, and so in 15 and 1 and 2 here, we see his rebuttal to the Pharisees of why he hangs out with the tax collectors, why he hangs out with the sinners. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, so, there's, you, um, so when Jesus tells, he's, he tells three parables here in this section, um, and, uh, and there's two groups of people. So he's got the tax collectors, um, the, the, the sinners. You can imagine what that looks like. And then you've got uh, the good people, the Fortune 500 Christians. You know, they come in with their suits and ties. And um, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, they just see themselves as being very good. And they ask Jesus why. And so what Jesus does is he gives two parables before. He tells them about the lost sheep. He leaves 99 sheep. Goes to find the one sheep, says in verse 7, this is very telling, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, as they thought that they were good enough. Okay, so he goes and he, he tells um, a quick quip about uh, him being a shepherd. Okay, and he, he relates that to himself. People have to understand this, because this is an offense for himself. What he's essentially saying is, I'm the shepherd. He goes on to tell the parable of the lost coin. He's the woman looking for the lost coin. Essentially, also what he's doing, is he's saying, I'm deified. People know that this is God. People know that he's relating to God here. And so when he's saying these things is that, well, God really wants to go find the lost sheep. God wants the lost coin. I'm God, and this is why I do what I do. He's making a claim of his deity right here. He's not just telling stories, and they know this. So we're going to get in here to the, the parable of the prodigal son, verse 11. Okay, this story um, has two acts. It's got three characters. Um, I'd love to take an intermission to go get some coffee, but we're not going to do that. Going to keep moving here. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Okay, so the act one begins with, with a speech by the younger brother. Okay, so there's three. There's younger brother, older brother, father. That's the three characters right there. We get them out of the way. And you have to understand that at this point right now, the Pharisees could not believe that this is the way Jesus is starting a story. Okay, so there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This is devastating. Because in in, uh, Near Eastern 
um, uh, culture. Uh, yeah, when the father dies, you get the property, but you don't get the property when the father's still alive. You don't. You don't ask for it. It's not like in today's society where a kid comes up to a, 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 his dad or mom after church and is like, hey, we're all going to Dairy Queen. Can I have $5? Can I have $5? Can I have $5? It's not like that. It's not like that. What he's saying is, look, dad, you are standing in my way of, of the happiness that I want. Give me what is mine, what is due to me, an entitlement, and get out of my way. You are dead to me. That's essentially what he's saying is you are dead to me. You are dead to me. In the Greek word here for um, give me the property that's coming to me, the property, essentially what it is, is he's not, there's two different Greek words to denote property in this, this sense. And the one would say property with responsibility to be the future leader of it, to take care of it. But he's not denoting that word. What he's saying is just give me the property without leadership, without responsibility. Give me my, uh, my, my money, my holdings, so that I, I can get out of here. It's not so that I can manage it and I can take care of it, but just so that I can have it. I don't want any of you. And when what it says is he divided his property, what it, essentially the property word, is, is, it's, it's the word Greek word bios. It sounds like the Greek word or the English word biology, right? It's where it comes from. It's life. It says so he, he divided his life between them. What does that mean? Dividing, uh, there, there's such a strong denotion between, um, connotation between land and, and, and person in the Near Eastern society that it is your life. Land was your life. And, and now in today's society, we don't think about that too much. People move constantly. They're like, yeah, you know, we can purchase a piece of land, whatever. Up until a couple hundred years ago, I mean, you have to understand People buying land, owning land was such a huge part, especially to the Jewish people. Think about in the, um, um, in, in, in the dark ages, in the medieval times, there were serf and there were serf and the whole serfdom society. They didn't own land. No one owned land. Just the rich people owned land. And so there's identity. Your whole stake in the community is owning land. When you, when you get together at a council and, uh, and it's the person who has the most land who is the person who's got the greater reputation or the greater stake in people listening to him. It's true. It's like that with the, the king. Uh, um, the reason the king was so powerful up in England for so long, he owned like 40% of the land of England. The queen owns so much of it now today, still. His land is powerful. And even more to the Jewish people because the, um, the Jewish people see their land, Zion, as, as God uh, set up the boundaries. God came down and pretty much set up as a surveyor, look, this is, it goes to this river, it goes to this boundary, it goes to here. God chose that land to a Jewish person. Uh, land is, 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 is in their blood. Um, it, it is an endowment from God. It is a blessing. And it's telling that in the Abrahamic covenant, God blesses the people who bless them, God blesses Abraham, and he blesses the land. And uh, essentially what he's saying is, I want your money. I don't want you. I want you to destroy yourself in the community. You will have less of a stake. You have less uh, of a name. I, I don't want you. You're in my way of my happiness. You know, that, that kid didn't do anything to deserve that. That was his forefathers and his father who worked the land, tilled the land, did everything for it. And he says, oh, it's mine. I deserve it. I've, I've come along. And it's mine. And people and the Pharisees hear this and they're like, all right, this kid's going to get his. 
Because there's only one response in this society that you give to a, a request like that. The response is you, you verbally and physically toss the kid out of the house and you, you disown him. And he's, he says that you're dead to him. No, no, he's dead to you. You throw him out of the house. But what does the father do? He divides his property between them. And they could not believe this. Could not believe it. It, it was total social... Um, it would be the opposite of norm. It was, it was completely different. They said, why would he do that? That's, that's ridiculous. He let him go his own way. So verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. He liquidates the funds. Um, and, it, and in the society, the father has to be in control of the land uh, until he dies, no matter what. So even if he sold the land, what probably happened is um, he sold it like a futures. Um, that he said... Um, look, I got to get out of here. I'm going to sell this. It officially can't turn over hands until my father dies, but you're, you're, you're making an investment that my father and my brother are going to, um, to work the land. They're going to grow it bigger. And then when he dies, you get this maybe bigger plot or bigger portion. And that's probably what happened. And it's a big fire sale. You know, that that's, um, business people know that that's the people you want to buy from or people who are like, I got to get out of here. I'm moving in two days. How much should I buy your couch for? I don't know. How much do you have in your pocket? I got to get out of here. I don't know. 10 bucks. That's good enough. I was going to trash it. It's the same way. This kid wants to get out there, probably just very unwise, sold it for a very cheap value from what it was really worth, from what his, his dad really meant to him in his life, from what his forefathers worked it and grew it bigger and said, um, no, 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 I got to get out of here. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to me. It just, the, it's the value to liquidate it and get out. It says he moved to a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. To a far country. Isn't that the way that you want to go and, and live and do whatever you want to do by, by, by the flesh? You, know, you, you want to go to a way, it's opposite of the TV show Cheers theme song. You want to go to a place where no one knows your name? <laughs> you, want to, you want to go and you live because there's no, there's no conscience. People can't be like, are you Charles' son? You're living this certain way. I... No, no, no. Where, where people just don't ask questions, they just comply with what you want to do with the flesh. It's kind of one of the things of Vegas, right? That's what they're saying. Uh, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No, it, I, I don't think they're talking about fun times. Um, <laughs> you know, they're not talking about great souvenirs when they say that. They're talking about living it up. And I, I guess maybe they say they're making it a family place. I don't know. But, but that's the, the, the catch thing. And that's where people are like, I know what that means, is I can go far away to go and, and live it up. My father obstructed me from being able to live it up, but I'm going to go so far outside the realm that it, it's, there's no one to stop me. I'm going to like a rocket ship shooting into whatever I want to do now. And a lot of times what happens is they find friends, right? Friends by affinity. You hang out and they think they're great friends because, well, he's got a bunch of money now and they're doing things together by association. They, he has this illusion that oh, we're great friends because we have, you know, times of debauchery together. Not the case. And when the money dries out, the kid's alone. He's got, I can't offer you any more fun times. I thought I was a shrewd manager. I thought that, you know, I, I purchased for you to have a good time. Now I'm out of money. Can't you do anything? Everyone's gone. Everyone's gone. It wasn't true friendship. And all he's got is the scars to remind him of the past mistakes he's made. So he squanders it all. Loose living. 
Later we find out from the brother that he, he spent it on harlots. He, he did a lot. In verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. Severe famine. So the first thing was his fault. He did it. He actively brought his own demise, spending all of his money. The second thing is, it was out of his control, a severe famine. We do not understand what a severe famine is. We don't. Up until, um, you know, with, with the type of irrigation we have and cultivation that, uh, that we have, um, we think, oh man, it's so bad right now. Farmers are, are subsidized to, to, to sell corn and then it turns into ethanol. Now stuff at the grocery store costs so much. Ah, oh, we're in a famine it feels like. It's not like that. It's far worse. John MacArthur goes on to talk about, I wanted to know what it was like to, to, for a person to be in a severe famine, and he found a person in the 1800s talking about what a severe famine looked like, and he was talking about how what it, it, people were dying all over the streets. You know, they were so frail, they couldn't get food, and, when, and the king came in and said, if someone dies outside your house, you have to drag him to the river. And so people would move dead people to, in front of other people's houses so that they'd be responsible to move them to the river. You know, there's cannibalism. Okay, it, it, um, people lose their civility and rationality when survival is on the line. Can't reason with someone who hasn't eaten for 30 days. Say, stop chewing on my leg. It, you can't. They're just, they want to survive. And so it says, because uh, went on to say that they, they fashioned us, uh, the store owners fashioned hippopotamus leather whips where they were just whipping these crazy, rabid, hungry people away from stealing their things and, and just doing whatever. And um, you know, families were uh, walled themselves in. They were so frail, they thought they were going to die. And to die in dignity, they bricked up walls inside their house so that hyenas couldn't, hyenas couldn't come in in their weakened state and devour them. That's a famine. Not, not it cost me a dollar more, a giant. And this is what's happening. This kid's got nothing now. And then he, didn't, he wasn't wise. He didn't provide. He didn't think, man, something could befall me. Troubles might befall me. I, I should save up. I should be a good steward of whatever I've done. No, he, he has an insult to injury. He spent it all, doesn't have friends. And then a famine comes on. And it's very telling what happens. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens uh, of that country. John Piper says, if you're not going to be a son to the father, you're going to be a slave to something else. And he hires him out to one of the citizens of that country. And you have to understand, the Pharisees are hearing this story. They're glad for this. They're like, that kid, man. I knew it. I knew that kid. Was, that was going to happen. I knew it. He's an idiot. He is. And now he's getting, he's getting his due. So he, he hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. That's the lowest of the low to the Jewish people, feeding pigs. You know what? Um, he went out to the citizens of that country, sent him to the fields. Um, one, one of the people actually thought, I think it was Piper MacArthur, uh, could have been B.B. Warfield. Someone said that he, he was sent out into the fields, and what might not have happened is that he probably might not have fed them, but he just maintained them, and that... And that gives reason to why he was longing for the feed uh, that they were eating later in verse 16. What happened was he'd take them out into the field. He'd kind of like, you know, push them around. I don't know, whatever they need to do. Get some exercise. Bring them back in. And he was probably, the scene is that he's on the fence, kind of just, you know, having an internal dialogue with himself, saying, man, I just, and someone else came out with a hired hand with a bag of, um, 
of feed and it was pods and it was gross and uh, he just longed for that and he's off to the side on the outside of the fence just thinking to himself, man, if I could only score some of that trash, if I could only eat that garbage, man. Uh, MacArthur goes on to say one of his, his friends uh, growing up down out in, out in LA was a, uh, owned a dump and he owned a pig farm. Sounds very, very interesting. But what... <laughs> What ended up happening was when the, when the dump or the garbage would come in, they would, the new garbage, they would put it in a pot and boil it, and then they'd throw it on the concrete, and the pigs would come up and eat it. They loved that. And then they'd get fat, and they'd sell them to the people, and the people would eat them. Okay, the Jewish people knew that, um, and God didn't want that, the uncleanliness in there. So he said, you cannot eat pigs. Cannot. Couldn't have pork. Couldn't have bacon. Um, I love bacon. It'd be hard for me to live back then. And uh, I could be like Forrest Gump's friend talking about bacon, bacon this, bacon that, bacon whatever. They talked about shrimp. Um, <laughs> but, um, but anyways, um, but it, and it was grotesque. And to see that the garbage that, uh, that, that they eat, and for him to long for that shows how low he came. Verse 17, though, we have a new beginning. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? First thing he says, he came to himself. He had a wrong shift of, of responsibility in his life. You see, he saw his dad as a roadblock, and now he sees himself as the roadblock. He says, uh, my father, you keep me from my fun. You keep me from, from living it up and going, I was going to say going to Vegas, but I guess, you know, I, I don't always just say, because people go to Vegas for legitimate things, um, conferences and stuff. But you're going to, to, to Sodom and Gomorrah, you keep me from doing whatever I want to do. And now he says, he takes responsibility upon himself and says, no, no, it was me. And you can see the connection because what does he say? He says um, that my father's hired servants have more than enough bread. See, he used to think, see his dad as heavy-handed. Now he sees his dad as generous and kind and caring. He sees his dad as a good man and he sees himself as a bad man. And so he says in 18, he devises a plan, right? He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. A hired servant is not like a tutor. It's not an engineer. It's not a butler. It's a day laborer. A person on the street corner who's got a sign saying, we'll work for food. Just give me a day, day wage. He's a muscle. That's all he is. He has no skills, no education. Just... Put me on a ladder and I'll go up and I'll pick fruit or I'll, I'll pick crops and um, that's it. And it, it, they, they, were, they were poor people. They probably didn't have a good union. So when the muscle went out, they were really in trouble. And that's what he's saying is just, just make me a day laborer. I'm not, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just make me a day laborer. Now, a lot of... Um, a lot of the Jewish, a lot of commentators think that the early rabbis, what they were really saying is that, okay, to be right with the Father is not to just to apologize, but now to make restitution. That's always, that is always what they thought back then, is you have to make restitution. You did wrong, can't just apologize, you got to pay him back fully. 
All right? And so he said, he said okay, he, he now has the right picture. He's going to come back. He, he cannot claim, he can't, doesn't have the pride to say, I'm worthy to be a son. I'm not worthy to be in your household. He, he just wants to pay him back and maybe pay back the estate for which he squandered, to pay back the shame for which he brought upon his father and himself. The rabbis hear this and they're like, yes. Okay, he's going to work for a long time. He's, his dad's going to push his face in the mud. He's going to say, yeah, you, you don't belong. You don't, you're not one of my sons. Get out there. You're lower than low. Okay, but so he, he devises the plan, but what, time, what does he do? In verse 20, and he arose. Okay, that's important. When you, when you want to realize that you are wrong, you need to know you're wrong, but then actually act on it. So he arose and came to his father. And this is one of the most, I think it's one of the most unbelievable things in the entire Bible, this scene right here. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. That's one. His father saw him, one. His father felt compassion. He ran, embraced him, and kissed him. The son who had dirt on his face, who smelled like probably pig feces, didn't get a shower for a long time. You know, he wasn't, he was, was not in his Sunday's best. Um... And his father meets him out there. It says his father saw him as his father was looking for him, longing for that, that connection in his heart uh, with his son. One of the things is in, in uh, the Near Eastern society is fathers do not run. They don't. Kids run, children run, uh, young adults run, women run, men do not run. They don't. And the reason for that is that they have uh, long robes on, and uh, they cannot show their legs. And what would, one of the requirements for running is to pick up the bottom of your robe and to run. In the Old Testament, they used to call it gird up your loins, right? When they're about to fight, put, pick up your, your garment, tie them up, and all, and <laughs> showing a lot of leg, and they start fighting. But older men do not do that. They do not show their legs. On the Sabbath, if you don't have a robe that touches the ground, you take out the hem and let it drag on the ground. You do not show your legs. In fact, one of the, the, um, the Old Testament ideas of, um, of being honorable on the Sabbath is that if a bird flies underneath your robe on the Sabbath, you could not get it out because you would show your leg. And so you've got to, you just got to hide it until the nighttime, the day comes, the next day comes, and then take it out. But otherwise, you would you'd let that bird do whatever in there, but don't. <laughs> otherwise, you'll dishonor yourself, and that's far worse than uh, anything else. From, um, and what does the father do? The father, to his, his shameless son with a shameless request and a shameless act, ask, acts shamefully to himself by picking up his robe and running to his son. John, John MacArthur gives the picture that would probably happen in his daytime because you could see him. And while his father, his son was a long way away, going into the village, rather than having his son Meet the scorn and the shame of the village. He ran out to meet him, to cover him up, so that when he came into the village, he could not feel any of the shame. And so what does he say? You know, he advised that, uh, that PowerPoint plan. This is what I'm going to do, Dad. I'm sorry for this. Pulls it out and says, uh, and he gets through his first thing. He says, um, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's going off down in his, his plan. What does the father do? It's like he's not even listening to him. He's like, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, his robe, and put, put it on him and, and put it, a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Okay, it's probably the signet ring, right? It, it's the ring that they're going to write a letter and they're going to seal it. It's the family crest. 
He's now a part of my family. Bring out the best robe. Cover him up. I'm not going to wait for him to shower. I'm not going to wait for him to, to clean himself off. I'm certainly not going to uh, wait for him to, to have restitution. He's, he's, there's full um, sonship without any, him doing anything. He puts shoes on his feet. And he says, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the set of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Okay, the story's not over. Normally, most people finish with that and they say, oh yeah, okay. And that's the prodigal son. And, and a lot of us feel like, man, well, we're not prodigal sons. We're not, man, I, I didn't pay for harlots or I didn't steal a car and drive it to New York City. I didn't do any of that stuff. But a lot of us are the elder brothers. And so let's, let's see what the story is with the elder brothers. Now, there is an older son who's in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, but he answered the father, look, these many days I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured uh, your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. But the big thing about his, his brother was angry about the money. He was angry uh, uh, particularly about the cost. He brought up the fattened calf like three times. You never gave me a goat. In the in Middle Eastern custom, to eat meat was very rare. No one rarely ate a fattened calf, Ever. And what it was is it was a whole celebration. You never ate it by yourself. It was a huge social no-no. It's not like going down to Carnes, getting some steaks, and saying we're going to have a family barbecue. Everyone from the village comes in for a fattened calf. It's like saying, I want everyone to know this son is back. I want him to, everyone to know that he's a part of my family. This, he, the, and now, it, we have to say that this man it was a very well-to-do man. He was not a man who, uh, you, not everyone just owns an estate, and, and he's putting his reputation on the line by saying, everyone is coming in. And so what, what, what uh, it's very telling here, um, I'm going to read off a couple notes here that I, I've written. Um, and so the, the brother is saying, how dare you use our wealth like this? He says, I have obeyed you. I should have some say in this, is what he's essentially saying. In other words, I have rights over your things. How dare you do this? He insults the father also by saying down in uh, uh, 29, he says, look. And in the English, it almost carries a, the sign is, look you. doesn't even call him father. Look you. This, you, you. It's ridiculous. He doesn't address him. And he publicly insults his father by not going into the biggest party the family's ever had. He publicly insults him by refusing to call him Father. But what does the father do? He responds in a sensitive way. He says, my son, or rather can be translated, my child, please come in. I still want you in the feast. Most fathers would have disowned him for that. A lot of people say it was just the one prodigal son. They're both lost sons. Both have, have staked uh, um, ownership over the father's property. And he says, I still want you in. And how does Jesus end the story? He ends it in the cliffhanger. He doesn't say, oh, you went into the house. He doesn't, he doesn't say that, oh, they became best friends and they had bunk beds. Or, 
or whatever. He doesn't do that. It's live action theater. He wants the Pharisees and he wants uh, the sinners and the tax collectors to come together. It was for them to decide the conclusion. Jesus does three radical things. We're going to quickly go through this. There's three radical things in this story. He redefines God, he redefines sin, and he redefines salvation. And a lot of people struggle with God as Father, as Jesus called him here in this story. And, God, and Jesus called God Father every time but once. One time. It was, the only, it was the only time he did not call, refer to God as Father. And a lot of people said, I don't want to call him Father. That's too patriarchal. It's sexist. It's, you know, my father was hard on me. My father pushed me. My father, uh, he, he was not sensitive. Yeah, my father was selfish. And Jesus says, not my father. My father is generous. My father um, has emotional abandonment where he hugs his children. And the generosity and his willingness to receive agony of rejected love. You know, that's the greatest agony you can, you can suffer uh, as a human being is rejected love. And the father endured it twice by both of his sons. By loving someone, in, in, while loving someone very close, they say, I, I don't love you. What Jesus is saying is, I, I'm sorry, I know a lot of you have fathers um, like what you've said, but I have a father that is not like that. So for all the pa- power and majesty and sovereignty, God is still so sensitive. He says, bring the children to me. And, and he allows for the suffering. And he's longing for your love. The shortest. Number, number two, he redefines sin. The next two points are very important. I'm borrowing these points, these last two points, or three points, from Tim Keller. And I I think it's brilliant what he says. And he says, in the first act, Jesus gives the listener the view of sin that is very traditional, right? Everyone can denounce and say, oh, that that kid, prostitutes, harlots, he's a sinner. It's easy. Anyone. Bring in a person who's who's not in this church, who's just off the street, and they'll be like, yeah, that's, that's wrong. Listen, that's wrong. That's why most of America is not Christian, but still, you know, prostitution's illegal. Some of these things are illegal or frowned upon. That's why political people, they lose positions when they find out things like this in the media. But in the second act, he turns the table. And this is what you're left with. There are two sons. One is very good, the other is very bad. And they're both alienated from the father's heart. Each one of them wanted the father's stuff, but not the father. Each one of them used the father to get what they really loved. They didn't love the father, they used the father to get what they really loved. The status, the wealth, the things they really loved. But they did it in two completely different ways. One did it being very, very good, and the other did it by being very, very bad. They're both lost. The bad one is lost in his badness, but the good one is lost in his goodness. And in the end... It's the bad one who saved and not the good one. And as far as we know, the good one is, uh, is lost and goes against everything everyone has ever believed about religion. And this is why I say that um, for the first 200 years, people considered Christians atheists and anti-religious because it is the good people who inherit salvation and it is the good people who, 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 who further and do things by the letter of the law. That They are the ones who have right over heaven. 
And God comes down and destroys the scales for which man sets for who is right, righteous and who is not. The lover of prostitutes is saved and the man of moral rectitude is lost. And it gets worse because when you see why the good son is lost, he was not lost in spite of his goodness. He was lost because of his goodness. He says, here's the reason I won't go into the feast of the father. Here's the reason I reject your father. I reject you, father. I have never disobeyed you, right? He said, ah, I've stayed with you all these times. I've, all these years, well, this guy did these things. I deserve it. I'm the father. I'm, I was there. I've been here. I've invested for you. I've taken care of everything for you. I deserve it. It's not his sin that keeps him from the father. It's his righteousness. The reason we read uh, the first two verses is to say that there's, there's two types of people. There's the tax collectors, there's the sinners, or there's, there's the tax collectors, and the Pharisees, or the tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes, and whatever. And then there's the Pharisees and, and uh, the people of the law. See themselves as rightly. And all of a sudden you begin to realize that there are two people, in the, who the two people in the parable really are. Sinners are younger brothers. And they run off and they, they live any way they want to. Pharisees are older religious people, and what they have in front of us are, are two basic ways that humans, they, they try to make the world right. They try to have rectitude and connect with the, the Father or God. And the two ideas are moral conformity and self-discovery. Moral conformity and self-discovery. Moral conformity people, they say, I'm putting aside my desires, I'm putting aside, uh, aside my wants, uh, I'm you know, I, on, the, on, on the Sabbath, I'm not going to get that, that, that bird out of my robe. I, I'd like to, but I'm pretty good because I'm not going to. I'd, I'd like to go and sleep around, but I'm not going to go to. So I'm good because of that. I, I, of course, I, I long for those things. I, I could go and indulge myself with anything, but I'm, I'm not going to. I'm pretty excited because, you know, I'm good because I don't go to movies and I, I don't drink and I don't dance and I don't do these things. I'm a good man because of that. good. I'm a better Christian because of that. And the self-discovery person says, well, I'm going to discover what's right for me, right? I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live as I want to live. No one's standing in my way. And you see these people today, they're the two separate people, the moral, moral conformists and the self-discovery. And each side says the world would be better if they conform to, to what they decide. And Jesus says, you're both wrong. You're both lost. You're both making the world worse and in completely different ways. You see, the Pharisees put a heavier weight on people and they said, you have to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. Well, that the law was right here and now you're setting boundaries further away from the law and you're making me do more things. And, and then the younger brother says, oh, well, no, it's just total lawlessness. Don't, don't do whatever you want. Go find the world's wisdom. Go seek whatever it is you want. That's where it's at, it's total anarchy. One, yeah, there's law, but it's too much law. And the other is just, there's no law, and it's just crazy. And they say, well, yeah, to the older brother, it's, it's the, the good that are in and the bad that are out. And to the younger brother, it's the progressive and open-minded they're in and the closed-minded conservative they're out. And Jesus says, neither the humble are in, the proud are out. Neither the good nor the open-minded are in. The people who say they're not good and need God's grace. The people who are on the good side of good enough or open-minded are both out. And Jesus says it's not religion, it's not anti-religion, it's not morality, it's not immorality, 
It's off the scales. It's completely different. It's not halfway in the middle. It's just completely different. And now you see what Jesus is saying about sin. Now you see how different it is. There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord, just like there are two ways to get control of the Father's stuff. One one tried to get control by just taking the stuff and going on his own way, and the other tried to by being good. Two ways to control, uh, to be your own Savior and Lord. Two ways to try and control God. And the people around you in your own life, there are two ways. One is by going off into the blue and living any old way you want. And the second is by keeping the commandments and praying all the time. Flannery O'Connor in one of her novels describes one of her characters like this. There was a dark, nameless understanding in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. She nails the older brotherness. She was saying, yeah, if you, if you think you love people and I'm good enough and I pray and I read the Bible, then God has to bless me. Jesus may be your rewarder. He may be your example. But Jesus is not your savior. You're your own savior. You're avoiding Jesus as savior by avoiding sin. You're, you're trying to control God by controlling your own sin. Your morality, your obedience is a way of getting God to give you what you really want. And it's not God, it's his stuff. You know, are you one of those people who, who are like, man, I've done all these things, uh, I'm, I'm in the bad times, uh, but I, I want things to be good, so I just, you, you rub Jesus like it's a, a lucky rabbit's foot. Yeah, I, it, it should be, I, I'm deserving of this. And religious people obey God to get his things, gospel people obey God to get God, to, to, to light him, to love him, to know him. You see, the, the, you know, the older brother lostness and the younger brother lostness are both terrible, and for different reasons. One, it's easy to see the younger brother with the addictions and the indulgence, and he's going to bring a lot, a lot of problems on himself, broken relationships. But the younger, or but the older brother lostness, look, look at his judgmental look, his anger. He's angry. He's always angry. Why is he angry? Because he has lived such a good life that God owes it to him to do it his way. And a couple, maybe a couple years, you might have some good years where, man, things are really starting to go my way, but it's not always going to, and it won't. And then you just get angry. Why is it not? Why are they living the good life, and I'm not? I've done these things. And you're just always tension. You're always angry, and you look at other people and say, why? It's deserving of me. You're always going to be looked, looking down on other people. According to Jesus, the definition of religion is the source of a tremendous amount of misery and strife in this world, and it all comes down to motivation. Of course, if you love the Father, you're going to obey him. But the motivation is completely different. Number three, okay, so Jesus uh, redefines God, Jesus redefines sin, and now he redefines salvation. And there's three subpoints in this. You see, Christianity can't divide people into, in the world into good and bad, immoral or immoral. It's not, they don't go deep enough. Neither of the side. Um, self-discovery and, and moralism don't go deep enough. And by default, they all fall into the same mode of self-justification. Right? Being your own savior or Lord. Try to control things. They try to control people and neither moral conformity or self-discovery um, they don't really talk about what's really wrong with the world or with themselves. How to be saved. And Jesus says, you need three things. And the first one 
is the initiating love of the Father. Okay, so there's three major points. The third one is Jesus redefines salvation. And the sub-point, first one, is you have to see the initiating love of the Father. Do you notice that the Father goes out to both sons in order to bring them in? He goes out to the younger son and kisses him even before he repents. It, it, it's not the, it, he doesn't repent and then he kisses him. The kiss facilitates reconciliation. And on the other side, you notice that the older brother, if you remember that Jesus is telling a story to Pharisees, and this, this is unbelievable, this point, don't miss this. Jesus knows he's about to be put to death by the older brothers. He knows that they're about to nail him to a cross, and what does he do? He still goes out to them and says, I want you to come into the party. I want you to come and eat the fattened calf with, with the low-down sinner. I know you're about to kill me, but come to the feast. Because the gospel is offensive to both sides. The true gospel is offensive to the moralists. The true gospel is, is offensive to self-discovery people. But it's usually the moralist people who have more power. Number two, you need to learn to repent for something besides sin. Now, what does he say? What does that mean? Number two. See, the younger son comes back and he has a lot of sins to repent of. And you always think, oh, that's the way you come back. You say, you, you make your list. Right? I've done this, I've done that. Martin Luther used to make a huge list. And he, he'd be in the confessional for six, seven hours. Say, I, I'm, I've done this, I've done this, to, to rid himself of what he's done. The elder brother, he's lost, but he's got nothing. He's got nothing on his list. And the father doesn't contradict him. So how does a person who's lost with no sins on his list get saved? Well, that's not to confuse you. He is a sinner, but he doesn't have the outstanding sins of the other people. He's confessed his sins in, in, in the synagogue. You know, in the synagogue, he, he, uh, a Pharisee does say they're wrong, and they say, yeah, I've, I've committed this, this um, treason against God, and I'm sorry, and they make this public apology. But after they're done uh, apologizing and making a scene, they go back to being Pharisees. They feel terrible about their sins, but they're done repenting. They're all Pharisees. And the difference between a Christian and a moralist is this. Christians also repent of what they're done, they've done wrong, but a Christian is someone who has also learned to repent for the reasons he did right. What does that mean? What it means is this. Christians repent for what they've done wrong, but they also know that the only reason they can do anything right is because of God. See, the Pharisees say, oh man, I know I've really messed up. <sighs> Father, please forgive me. And then you say, but I'm, I'm gonna do some good things though. And the Christian says, look, the reason I do wrong is because myself acts out and the reason I do right is because God allows me to do right in soft justification. It's a big difference. That no one can do right, no one can do good aside from the Father. And when you understand that, you stop being your own God and everything changes. And you, the way you handle um, other people, the way you see people, and it's different. And it's called a new birth. And the third point and the last point, you have to be broken over the cost of bringing you home. The key difference between a Christian and a Pharisee is motivation. We talked about that. The Pharisee obeys God to get things. The Christian obeys God to get God. But why? It has to be something the Christian has seen that he's able to give up his own self-interest for God's. 
And you have to see what the cost is. It didn't seem like it cost the son anything, right? It didn't. There was no compensation for, for his desire to come home. But the father, um, you know, he didn't make him pay anything. It was free. It didn't cost anything. No. It didn't cost him anything, but it cost someone a great deal. And at the very end, Jesus gives um, an insight into this. And you see in, the, I believe it's 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. And that's literally true. He, he already sold his, his stake in, in, um, in the estate. Everything is the older brothers now. Everything. And so the fattened calf was the older brothers. He liquidated his estate and now everything, single thing, the father has belongs to the older brother. Every robe that was given to the younger son, the ring, the fattened calf belongs to the elder brother. The younger brother could only be brought back into the family at the enormous expense of the older brother. It's not free. It's not simple to be saved. Somebody has to pay. The elder brother is furious about it. And why does Jesus have to put in such a nasty older brother? Because he's showing the Pharisees for what they are. You see, a really good older brother would say, you know, Dad, I'm going to go out. I'm going to look for my younger brother. I'm going to go find him. And if he's in debauchery, and um, I'm going to find him. I'm going to encourage him. If he doesn't have money, I'm going to pay his way to come back. That's what a real younger or older brother would do. The truth is that this younger brother doesn't have a true elder brother, but we do. And Jesus Christ gives us a bad older brother so that we long for the right one. We don't just need an elder brother to go out into the next town to find us. We need an elder brother to come down from heaven to earth. We don't need an elder brother to, to open up his wallet and to give us money. We need an elder brother to pay the cost of his life. Because on the cross, Jesus uh, was stripped naked so that we could be covered in a robe. And the only time, it said earlier, <clears throat> the only time that Jesus didn't call God Father was when he was dying on the cross. And uh, he said, my God, my God. He was not treated like a son then so that we could be treated like a son. And there he paid the debt you and I both owe. And because everything he had, he had everything his, uh, the father had, but he shares it with us. And he brings us home at enormous expense to himself. And when you see that, to the degree you see that, it will change the absolute motivation of your life. Your whole approach towards God, and you won't be into self-discovery, you won't be into moral conformity, you'll be a Christian. Quick applications. Number one, think about here where between the two older brother and the younger brother, I think a lot of people here in this area are more of the moralists. I do. I think there's a lot more older brothers here. In, the, in this area, it's, it's, it's very conservative. Um, and it, it's, just, it's just got that roots of uh, everyone in society talks about the younger brothers. You hear it all the time. They're like, and they often run to cities. They go to New York or whatever. They, they pursue things. But it's the older brothers who stay home and talk about it. I was talking with one of my buddies um, this, this past week. And we said, why? One of the things I didn't understand is our friends that we grew up with, I said, um, why does it seem like the only things they love to talk about is the downfalls of other people. And it's like it brings them some innate joy. And he said it's because um, it's the legalism we grew up with. 
It's true. The reason they do that, and the reason they just talk about it is to say, let's not talk about my shortcomings. I'm gonna talk about someone else's, and we're gonna take great joy because I'm gonna show you how good I am because I'm not that. Good because I don't do these things rather than it breaking their heart to even, to even mention it, to even think about it. And as a response, you have to understand that that we're not, we cannot be good on our own. That you're, you're, you're gonna pass out, you're gonna need medicine because you're gonna be angry all the time. You're gonna be stressed. Why, oh, why is this not happening for me? God owes it to me. Things are not going to work the way that you want to. God cares as much for our sins as our damnable good, look, good works. Lastly, if we're going to be a church that really follows this, we're going to get take some heat from both sides. Some of the liberals are going to say, you guys are so conservative. You guys teach the gospel. You guys, uh, I mean, maybe on the outside it looks cool of a building, and you guys, you guys have guitars and drums. That's cool. And you guys don't stand up there and openly condemn, like, like just point out the homosexuals and say, Ah, blasted, they're all going to hell. But then on the flip side, the conservatives will say, wait a second, but, I mean, you don't say that anyone who drinks alcohol is going to hell. And you don't, you you say, you have to decide with your own conscience before God. Yeah, we like your gospel, but you don't set the rules that we set. And we're gonna take heat for this. But Jesus loves us. We, we got to stay the course. We don't, we don't do things to merit favor with God. Isaiah says that all of our good works are like filthy rags. Now, uh, just r- real quickly, Mark Driscoll gives this illustration where he says, the craziest things is that it's like this. It's like a father who comes along and uh, takes this young man under his arm who's, you know, who's destitute, who's... Um, He's got nothing going on. Maybe he just got out of jail, whatever. And he pays him for him to go to school, helps him buy a house, helps him get set up, lets him marry his own daughter, does all these things. And years down the road, I mean, as he's completely changed this person's life, the young man says, I'm gonna pay you back. He gives him 10 bucks. <laughs> the father would be outraged. And that's how God is outraged when we say, thanks for your son, I'm going to pay you back now. I'm good enough now. Thanks. Hey, thanks for giving me a, an, get me an interview. Thank you. I appreciate that. And that's what we do when we say, hey, man, look at my works. Look what I've done. You like that? I do it for the appearance of man and not for the glory of God.